I heard Tim tell Rick, why don't you sing that like you mean it? <laughs> well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 11. I know it's, it's been a whole month since we've been in Luke. It's, do you remember what the book's about or have you forgotten? Uh, as you're finding it, uh, I just want you to know that you know, what I do is, is as I'm teaching through a book, I keep reading ahead to kind of get the flow of the context and, and it's getting pretty serious in Luke. I mean, if you've thought it's been serious so far, it gets scary. <laughs> We're getting into some pretty scary stuff. We've got one more little section, a couple little verses, verses 33 through 36, which isn't too scary. But after that, it gets scary for a long time. And uh, what's happening here is Jesus is in, reaching the end of his ministry. He's come on the scene and uh, he's taught, he's dialogued with people, he's done miracles. And as the persecution uh, increases and the opposition increases and as people are trying to discredit him and kill him, um, he knows his time is coming. And because of that... He becomes a lot more direct, very direct, in fact, very forceful, um, no bantering, no little trite dialogues. He just goes after him. And so in the weeks to come, what we're going to discover is a lot of very confrontational, very forceful um, statements that Jesus makes because he loves people. Frankly, he wants to see them saved. He is the Messiah. He is the king. He has come to seek and save those who are lost. And he wants to make sure they repent and believe. Well, the problem is they're not repenting and believing. And uh, it's kind of like parenting, you know, when when the mild rebuke doesn't work, you start amping up the rebuke and the consequences until there's some sort of change. And this is what we see Jesus doing in these chapters of Luke as we move towards his crucifixion. We see him speaking a lot more forcefully and directly to people, uh, especially when he's speaking to crowds of people. And you'll see how that is as we go into the text. Now, uh, if you remember just, you know, a month ago, um, as we ended the, where was it in uh, verse 26 or whatever, um, the first part of the chapter is about prayer. We learned about the disciples' prayer, and Jesus taught us other thing on prayer. And then Jesus heals a demon-possessed man, and um, this causes problems because there are groups of Jewish leaders now who are following him around for the sole purpose of trying to discredit him. The reason is, is Jesus has exposed their sin, made them look bad in the eyes of the, the people, and so they hate Jesus' gods. So they travel around trying to accuse him, expose him, trick him, deceive him, do something to discredit him in the eyes of the people. And this is what's been going on. And this is what happened when he healed the demon-possessed man. They said he did it by the power of Satan. Jesus said, no, that couldn't be because Satan can't be against Satan or his kingdom wouldn't stand. But then he tells a pretty frightening little um, statement. And I think this was more directed towards the man who had the demon cast out of him. He said, listen, if you get a demon cast out of you and you don't get anybody to move in who replaces that demon... 
you're going to be in big trouble because that demon's going to come back with seven of his buddies more wicked than himself and he's going to really make your life really miserable. And I think what he was saying is, is listen, I cast a demon out. You better repent and believe in me. If you don't do that, you're opening yourself up for more wickedness than you've ever experienced. And so that has what is what has happened in the preceding context of our text today. Now, at first, what I do is is when I'm kind of, you know, everybody wants to know what I'm going to preach on. So I make what are called guesstimated preaching schedules, which are never right. Um, they're good for one week. And then after that, they increasingly are less accurate. So I'm constantly redoing the sermon schedule because I never know what's going to happen. I was going to just preach verses 27 and 28. And. And uh, this woman who stands up and, and, and uh, says, blessed be the mother who um, bore you and the nurse, the breast that nurse you. And, and Jesus then replies to her. And, I, and most Bibles, and this might be the case in your Bibles, I looked in several, have a break after verse 28. And then they, then it goes into another section on the sign of Jonah, the prophet. And so this is how most of the Bibles are broken up. There's kind of a break there. But after I started looking at it, especially this week, I thought, no, that's not a good break. And so we are going to look at verses 27 through 32 this morning. And I think as we go through here, you will see how they all fit together. And so you can follow along as I read, starting in verse 27 of Luke 11. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. And as the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. But just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the son of man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at judgment and condemn it because they repented of the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, from this text, Jesus wants you to learn that he is greater, more blessed, more worthy of praise and adoration than any other person or thing. He gives three um, examples, and he wants you to know this so you won't neglect your salvation. Salvation is the undercurrent of the whole text, and we'll see how that is. But the first point is not Mary, but Jesus. Look at verse 27. While Jesus was saying these things... He has just talked about demon possession and the kingdom of Satan. He's talking about those things after he has said those things. One of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you in the breast at which you nursed. Now, what's going on here? Well, this is what's going on. A huge crowd of people has assembled. As a matter of fact, as we read in our text in verse 29, it says the crowds were increasing. And they keep on increasing. If you look at chapter 12, verse 1, if you look there, you'll notice as it says that Jesus has um, lunch with this Pharisee. And then in verse 12, it says, And under these circumstances, after so many thousands of people had gathered together, that they were stepping on one another. I mean, there's just gobs of people, thousands of people. And they're crowding around. And what happens is, is as often is the case, um, last night we were driving on the freeway, there was an accident. 
two cars collided and smashed into the rail. And of course, there was a huge mass of people gathered to see them. And every car that drove by wanted to drive by really slow to see if there was any dead bodies on the road. And uh, sometimes when I do that, I don't even look. I just look the other way just to, you know, defy that, um, the gawking problem. Anyways, uh, these people are kind of the same way. You know, a little crowd gets started. Jesus starts teaching. He starts healing and people, word gets out. And as more people gather, more people are then attracted to the more people who have gathered. And pretty soon there's a bigger crowd. And then more people want to come to see what's going on in the bigger crowd. And pretty soon more and more people are gathering until there are thousands of people clustered around Jesus. That's what's going on. In the midst of this, some woman just shouts out, raises her voice and says, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nurse. She is saying, blessed be your mom, basically. She's excited about Jesus. She for sure believes Jesus is a prophet, maybe the prophet, maybe the Messiah. She's excited. She sees the miracles. She hears the teaching and she's just ecstatic, excited. Blessed be your mom. And every Jewish woman woman wanted to be the mother of the Messiah. Every Jewish woman would love to be the mother of a great prophet. And so this woman is thinking in her mind, wow, this man is great. Her mother must, his mother must have been really something. Now, why would she be thinking that? Well, because at this time, it was thought among the Jews, and it's still common among even Christians in the church today, that there is this unavoidable, rigid, inflexible, almost a scientific or mathematical law that says, if you're godly, you will be healthy, wealthy, and wise, and if you're ungodly, you'll be cursed. Now, where did they get that idea from? Well, they got it from um, some of the uh, the covenants that God made. For instance, when God made the covenant with Moses at Sinai, if you read it towards the end of Deuteronomy, you will find that, you know, if you obey my voice, if you do these things, you will be blessed and this will happen and this will happen and you will prosper in the land and, you know, all these things and diseases will stay away from you and just blessing, blessing, blessing. But if you disobey... Then there's this huge list of curses that would come upon you. One curse after another, you'll be devoured by the sword and pestilence and plague and no rain. And and so this kind of thought, this blessing for obedience and cursing for disobedience led to the kind of distorted view that was given to a people who were making a covenant with God to love him. They, supposedly, they would already be saved. Because the great commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what God was after. I want a heart commitment. Once you have that heart commitment, then you begin to obey me because you love me. Same thing is taught in the New Testament. Jesus says, if you love me, you will what? You will keep my commandments. So love is always to be the motivation for obedience, never earning God's favor. 
earning God's grace. Grace, by definition, cannot be earned because it's undeserved, unearned favor. So God makes this covenant and he says, listen, you make a covenant with me. And all the people said, you know, we will do what you say. We will obey you. He says, okay, here it is. Here's my covenant I'm making with you. You can prosper. You do this. I'm going to bless you. If you as a nation begin to go astray, then these things will come upon you as a nation. Well, the Jews took this concept And they then moved a degree away from it to what theologians call retribution theology. Retribution theology is when you take it upon yourself that if, you know, you ever get a raise at work, I must be godly. But if you hit your thumb with a hammer, I must have sinned. You know, that every time something, quote, bad happens to you, it's my sin. And anytime something good, it's, it's my godliness. And what this really then moves into retribution theology often comes to what theologians like to call compensation theology, which what really is, is when I'm good, God pays me with blessing. And when I'm bad, he afflicts me with pain. He withholds my quote wages. And pretty soon people get into the false mindset that the only way they can ever be blessed is if they're good and then God gives them blessing. But we know that's not true because we know that we were all wicked. We were our enemies and then Christ saves us, right? While we were yet enemies, God loved us. I mean, think about Job. How does God describe Job to Satan? He was a blameless man, upright, fearing the Lord, turning away from evil. And yet look how much he suffered. Look at his friends. They believed in retribution theology, didn't they? Because what did they say? Oh, no, you sinned. You've got, you had to have sinned. I mean, look at you. You lost everything. You lost your health. I mean, the only thing you're left with is that wife is telling you to curse God and die. There's something wrong. I mean, you, you, you must have, what, what was it? Just come clean. Just tell us. I mean, you know, for chapter after chapter, they're accusing him falsely of doing evil. And that is why this has come upon him. Not true. And then when you read through the Psalms, you read various psalmists, you read the prophets. And what is one of their common cries? Why are the wicked prospering? They just, they want to pull their hair out. Why? Because they believed in retribution theology too. It's like, why is this happening? Why are their eyes bulging from fatness and the imagination of their hearts run wide? And they're, look at them. They're, they're, they're flourishing like a green tree in its native soil. What is going on? Because they had ingrained in their thinking this idea That God only blesses godly people and he curses ungodly one. But the fact is God only blesses ungodly people. And the way they become godly is when God blesses them. And the way they stay godly is God blesses them. And at the beginning it's his grace and the middle is his grace and at the end it's his grace and it's grace. And as soon as you begin to think that you can find favor with God, then you've bought in really to compensation theology you're trying to earn god's grace which of course you can't do so what's interesting here is he's this woman and i'm you know 
I don't think she really has bad motives or anything. She just, just blurts out, blessed is the womb, you know. Uh, Blessed is your mother who nursed you and raised you. Why? Because she must have been super godly. I mean, God looked out over all the women on the earth and said, okay, who's the most godly one? Who is the perfect mom? She's going to give birth to the Messiah. Not so. I mean, the Roman Catholic Church does teach the doctrine of what is called the Immaculate Conception. It's not true. It's not found in the Bible. It's a doctrine which says that Mary was born sinless. And that's how she gave birth to sinless Jesus. But think about that. Well, then how did Mary get sinless? Say, were her parents sinless? Well, they'd have to be. And then what about their parents and their parents' parents? And pretty soon the whole human race is sinless. No, when Mary prayed in her Magnificat, she rejoiced in God, her what? Savior. Why? Because she was a sinner. Mary wasn't super godly, so God used her to be the mother of the Messiah. She was a sinner. And by grace, God saved her. And by grace, God chose her to be the mother of the Messiah. You know, if you were to go to some master craftsman shop and you see all these different tools there and the guy just makes these incredible, you know, pieces of furniture or whatever, and you're looking at the furniture, you don't go, oh, interesting. Man, those are great tools. Blessed be those tools. I can't believe those tools made that furniture. That would be that would be ridiculous. The tools just sit there. Without the craftsmen, they just sit there and get rusty. The tools don't do anything. Well, we're just tools. We're just tools. And you don't say, well, that person's a great preacher. Well, okay. Who saved them? Well, God did. Who gave them their spiritual gifts? Well, well, God did. Who gave them the opportunity to have training? Well, God did. Who empowers them when they preach? Well, God does. You know, who empowers the word of God when they preach? Well, God does. So praise the preacher. That that's like saying, "Well, praise the tool." Mary was blessed because she was chosen, but never think that Mary was chosen to be the mother of the Messiah because she earned some favor with God. That is not the case at all. And you know, this is the perfect place if Jesus wanted to promote you know, the worship of Mary, praying to Mary. This is like T-ball text here, isn't it? Because the woman spouts off, there's tons of peaceful people listening, and he could have said, you know, you're right. Blessed be Mary. Pray to Mary. Worship Mary. Bow down to Mary. She is the queen of heaven. She is co-redeemer. You have to go through Mary to be saved. Is that what Jesus says? Look at the text. Verse 28. But he said, on the contrary... Now, this is uh, a word here. The word in the Greek could mean several things. It could mean something like this. The exact opposite. Or no, um, Mary is not blessed at all, but something else is. Uh, That's one way of taking it. Another way of taking it is Mary, on the contrary, is not the only one who is blessed. And that's how it is in this text. On the contrary, Mary is not the only one who is blessed. Well, then who is? 
Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Now, think about this. Mary was told the word of God by the angel that she was going to give birth to the Messiah. And you remember how she responded? She said, may it be with me according to your word. She heard the word of God and then she responded in submission. She heard the word of God and she observed it. Jesus isn't denying that Mary was blessed. Jesus isn't lowering Mary and saying, wow, Mary's nothing special. You know, my mom wasn't that great. I mean, yeah, she, you know, give you a virtual virgin, which is pretty unique. And I am the Messiah, which is pretty unique. And, you know, who else, what other mother could sit around, you know, with the other moms and say, my son spoke the universe into existence. <laughs> you know, I mean, that kind of makes student of the month look pretty pale, doesn't it? <laughs> But he isn't saying Mary's nothing special, Mary's average, you know, let's bring Mary down to some sort of average plane. He's not saying that. Yes, Mary is abundantly blessed. We know that because in Luke chapter 148, when Mary is praising God, and when she gives her inspired prophetic utterance, she says, all generations will call me blessed. And Jesus isn't contradicting that. What he's saying is this. Mary is blessed, yes, but on the contrary, she's not the only one. Anyone, anyone who hears the word of God and observes it, that person is equally blessed. That's what he's saying. That is just amazing. You know, being the mother of the Messiah is a pretty huge deal, isn't it? Jesus just takes all believers now and raises them up to the same status as Mary. That is just amazing. You know, when Jesus is speaking to this crowd now, keep in mind the crowd is not receiving him as the Messiah. And at that time, Jewish women were kind of looked down upon. I mean, they weren't, they weren't given the rights they have now. Granted, uh, among the other cultures, uh, the Jewish culture treated their women, at least according to the Old Testament scriptures, Jewish women were to be con- treated with respect and kindness and things like that. They weren't to be reduced to slavery. And yet, in the culture at this time and the Roman influence and Greek influence, a lot of things that were going on, a lot of women were treated in a substandard way. There was even Jewish men who at the time would wake up every morning and say, Lord, I thank you. I am not a Gentile, a slave or a woman. And a lot of people have really cried foul at that. But the fact is, Jewish men had privileges in that society, which women did not. And so it wasn't um, like they were saying, you know, women are worthless. They're just saying, I thank God that God has given me these privileges. And so keep in mind that when Jesus now has this woman just on her own spontaneously blurts out and blesses Mary, Jesus is now taking this opportunity to teach something very important, that it was not Mary alone who's super blessed. She is super blessed, but so is everyone else who hears the word of God and observes it. Not just Mary. 
Mary had an angel speak to her. She was a young woman and she observed or submitted to what the angel told her. Now get this. The crowd in front of Jesus is standing in front of the word of God incarnate. You know, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. And verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. They, they aren't getting a message from some messenger. They're standing in front of the message, the word of God himself, God the word. And unlike Mary, who heard the message and submitted to it, they also have miracles to accompany the word, and they still aren't believing. That is what Jesus is after here. He's trying to show the crowd, listen, everyone who hears and observes is blessed. What would you call, what is a synonym for somebody who hears and obeys God's word? The Christian, right? I mean, isn't that what Christians are? Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. There it is. I mean, that's what it means to be a Christian. And listen, when you have more revelation and you reject that revelation, it doesn't go well with you. It doesn't go well with you. You know, I fear for people who come to churches like Calvary Bible Church where they hear Teaching from the word of God ah, on Sunday morning and Sunday school and every single other church function. I've had people tell me, man, this church is amazing. Why is that? Well, it's like everywhere we go, there's like scripture on everything. Every little pamphlet and every little piece of paper has like biblical justification for it. Well, you know what? That's great. Unless you reject it. Do you remember what Jesus said in Luke chapter 12 verses 47 and 48? When he's talking about the parable of the sensible steward, he says this. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accordance with his will will receive many lashes. Notice he knew the truth and didn't observe it. Then he says, but the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of flogging will receive but few from everyone who has been given much, much will be required and to whom they entrust much of him. They will ask all the more. Jesus is telling the crowd, listen, Mary's not blessed. Anybody who hears the word of God and responds to it, and that could be you right now. The fact that you do not want to obey tells us something. When somebody says, you know, I'm a Christian, but, you know, I don't have to go to church and I don't have to read my Bible. I don't have to pray. I don't have to serve. I don't have to give. You know, I don't have to obey God. I mean, I'm just getting out of hell is what I'm doing. I'm escaping. You know, I've got fire insurance from Jesus. That's not a Christian. That's just a deceived person. Remember what James says? Anyone who is a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word is what? Self-deluded. 
You remember what Jesus said at the end of the, of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 when he gives those two little parables at the end? Let me remind you. Matthew chapter 7 verses 24 and 27. Listen to this. The same theme. It runs all the way through the Gospels. And man, are we going to encounter it in the next five chapters. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. Okay, that's the first group. You hear the word of God and then you observe it shall be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and yet it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock now do you think that's a christian or a non-christian a christian all right then we have another person verse 26 everyone who hears these words of mine just like the first group same identical wording except for the end and does not Act on them. We'll be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and it fell and great was its fall. Jesus is really saying, you know what? Mary was blessed, but so is every other believer. Every other believer is super blessed. And you crowd out there. Are not believing. That's what he's trying to communicate to them. Your life is built on the sand. And so is everybody else's. Who thinks they can call themselves a Christian. They were Jews. They were God's chosen people. They were children of Abraham. They were going to hell. And many of them didn't know it. And the religious leaders thought. That they were. Great godly. Pious men. They were self deluded. Because they were hearing the words of God incarnate, but they were not doing it. These things are bad. These things are bad. Mary is not blessed alone, but everyone who hears and obeys. The second thing we see is not Jonah, but Jesus. Jesus is now going to expand upon the same principle he just taught. This woman is like, the one who lit the fuse. And so Jesus said, okay, you want to go there? We'll go there. And so he now is going to talk a little bit about Jonah. Now notice that verse 29 starts and the crowds were increasing. So we've seen that the crowd is already there. The crowd is increasing. And pretty soon in the beginning of chapter 12, they're stepping on each other. There's so many people. It's like Woodstock. And here Jesus is surrounded by these thousands of people They're all there. And you know what? He's going to encourage them. And so he says, this generation is a wicked generation. Now, just think about that. That is so non-seeker sensitive. You know, you read church growth books today. They go, whatever you do, don't talk about judgment. Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about repentance. Don't talk about anything like that because you will kill your church. You will drive people away. They won't tolerate that for a minute. You got to, man, you got to make them feel good. You'd think that Jesus would stand up and go, you are such a great crowd of people. Blessed be you. Blessed be you. Feel good about yourself. Look into the mirror and tell yourself you are a great person. Is that what Jesus does? No. He says, I want you to know the whole lot of you, you're a wicked generation. Why would he say that? Because it was true. Because people don't need a savior until they realize they are sinners. 
They won't come to Christ until they realize I am wicked. And I need somebody to save me from my sins. But instead, they were thinking, we're good. You're bad. We're righteous. You're unrighteous. You've got a demon. You're a false prophet. Do another trick. Give us another trick. And so he goes for the spiritual cancer. The reason they gathered was to see Jesus perform miracles. They just wanted to have Jesus entertain them. You know what? Miracles never save people. They point to either the person that can save them, in Jesus' case, himself, or to the one who preaches the message. Remember we talked about the signs or the purpose of signs and wonders? They're signs. They're signs, you know, this way to Yosemite. And how many people want to camp out in front of the sign? Say, man, what a cool sign. That's not the deal. What points is the deal? What is it pointing to? That's the deal. Yosemite's the deal, not the sign that says 20 miles this way. These people will give us another sign that says 15 miles this way and then 10. They, they weren't. Getting it. They were missing the Messiah because they wanted more signs. And people do that today. Some people are so into miracles and so into signs. Listen, do you remember what the author of Hebrews says about the people of Israel? After they they saw the ten plagues, right? They came out of Egypt. There was the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, the parting of the Red Sea. They went into the wilderness. Their clothes didn't wear out. Manna dropped from heaven every day. And what does the author of Hebrews say? The entire generation... Dropped dead because of what? Unbelief. Though they had witnessed my miracles for 40 years, they dropped dead. There wasn't another miracle. Jesus says, you're wicked. You're wicked. I am the Messiah. These miracles are just here to point to me. And I'm telling you, I'm the guy. They don't want to believe. They don't want to believe. And so one woman wanted to praise Mary because Jesus was able to do miracles. She missed the Messiah and thought about the Messiah's mother instead. Now Jesus sees the crowd gathering because they want to see more miracles performed. Because Jews love miracles just like people today. It's the same problem. If you look back in chapter 11 verse 16, it says others to test him were demanding him a sign from heaven. Well, he just healed a demon possessed guy. It's never satisfied. We'll do something a little bigger. Can you do fire this time? Can you part the sea? Can you part a little wider? Can you part it quicker? Can you dry out the land quicker? You know, bigger frogs, more gnats. I don't know. Give us a, give us a bigger and better and cool. And they never stop to say, well, why is this guy able to do this? Who is this guy anyways? Why is he here? It was all about them, their entertainment. Jesus wasn't seeking to please men or make them feel good. So he just tells them, you're a wicked generation. And look at what he says in the middle of verse 29. This wicked generation seeks for a sign and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. Now that is very interesting. No sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. What's that? Well, if you remember what happened with Jonah, um, Jonah, you know, was uh, a prophet in Israel. God says, I want you to go preach 
to the Ninevites, you know, our enemies, the ones who kill Israelites and hang up their carcasses on their wall to rot. Yeah. Why don't you go preach to them? And Jonah says, I'm not going to go preach to them. And you know why? Well, if you read the book, he says, I knew that you were a compassionate God. And that you were forgiving God. And so there's no way I'm going to go preach to the Ninevites. Because if they repent, you'll forgive them. And then you won't destroy them. And I want them destroyed. So I'm getting out of here. So he heads out. Of course, you know, the storm comes up at sea. The sailors wonder what's going on. Finally, Jonah fesses up. It's me. The reason the storm has come is me. Just throw me over. We're not throwing you over. They try their best. They realize we're going down unless we throw them over. They pitch him over. The big fish comes and swallows him up. And uh, the sea then gets calm. And Jonah is then in a dark, slimy, digesting place for three days. Before he is spit up again by the fish. And he has this incredible attitude change. (laughs) And he says, okay, I'm going to go preach to him. Now, he's still reluctant. If you read the story, he's still reluctant. He he preaches them very begrudgingly. Okay, he'll go. He's like a kid. You know, he's forced to clean their room. And the mother's standing over. Pick that up. Pick that up. Pick that up. You know, he's doing it just because mom's big. But his heart isn't into it. And you remember what he did. He just walked around the city for three days and said, in 40 days, then it will be overthrown. He's probably thinking, I hope they kill me. (laughs) He is so bitter. Then he goes outside the city and he plops down. He's like, okay, Lord, I'm waiting for fire. I remember what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Bring it on. And then God grows up this little plant that gives him some shade, remember? And he loves that plant. Because, you know, it was hot out there in the sun and he was roasting. And then as he's enjoying that plant, then God sends the worm to eat the plant and it withers. And then he despairs and says, oh, yeah, you know, but you have a right to be angry. Yes, I have a right to be angry. Oh, really? And God says, you know, you have more compassion on that plant, which you neither sowed nor you made grow. And yet you don't have any compassion on the Ninevites who have 120,000 persons in that city who don't know their right hand from left, a euphemism for children. They had 120,000 kids who were so young, they, they didn't know their right hand from their left, which tells us that a conservative estimation is that Nineveh was some 600,000 to 1 million people in that city. And Jonah has more compassion for the plant. And he goes to the city, 40 days, then it'll be overthrown. And you know what's great about it? The fact that God sent Jonah tells us what about God? I mean, if God was going to just destroy Nineveh, he would have what? Destroyed Nineveh. He didn't send anybody through Sodom and Gomorrah, did he? No, the fact that he sent Jonah and Jonah proclaimed the message, a message of 40 days until judgment was God's opportunity to let the people of Nineveh repent. And they did. And he didn't judge them. Now, don't miss what's going on here. Ninevites, enemies of Israel, Ninevites, pagans. Ninevites don't know anything about God. Ninevites get one little fragment of the word of God. Through a reluctant prophet, 
and the greatest mass revival ever recorded in the history of the world occurred. I mean, how many people have led 600,000 people to the Lord? That's amazing, isn't it? I mean, okay, well, you know, only really, actually only 400,000. Okay. That's a lot of people. The whole, the whole city repented in sackcloth and ashes at the preaching of Jonah. And you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, so here I am, the son of God, the Messiah who's fulfilled all prophecies, who isn't giving you a fragment. I am teaching and preaching constantly in your cities and in your towns. I am doing miracles to verify that I am the Messiah and you won't repent. Do you see the contrast there? They were getting plenty of information. Plenty of information. That is the contrast. That is the contrast. Jonah preached the word of God, which was given to him by God, but Jesus was the word of God. The pagan Ninevites preached after the short judgment message of Jonah. And these people in front of Jesus had tons and tons of teaching and preaching and still weren't repentant. Jonah himself was in a way a miracle, but you know what? We don't even know if the Ninevites knew anything about the whale and the fish and him fleeing and getting spit up on the beach. I mean, you know, people often talk about him, you know, showing up, looking all bleached out and stuff. It kind of makes for good preaching. But um, the fact is, is Nineveh is nowhere near an ocean. And if he got split, spit up anywhere during the Mediterranean basin there, he probably had to walk six weeks to Nineveh. So, you know, he was probably tanned up by the time he got there. But he probably didn't go through and go, you know why I'm here? Because I tried to run away and I got thrown into the sea and this fish ate me. And I was in the fish for three days and it spit me up on the beach. I got my act cleaned up. I've hiked six weeks to meet you. And I want you to know he probably didn't do that. He was reluctant. He wasn't giving him any more information than he possibly could. Forty days. That's all God said. That's all I'm giving you. The fragment. And you know what? If Jonah was a great guy and he was more reluctant, he'd probably get proud that, yeah, see, I brought that whole city to repentance. God loves to use very common people. And Jonah was like the most common of all prophets. He was, you know, if you probably had to rate all the prophets, he's probably the worst one. And then God uses him to lead the greatest revival that has ever occurred in the history of the world. So who gets the praise? God does. God does. And then notice what Jesus says in verse 30. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the son of man be to this generation. Now, some people have asked, well, what is the sign? You know, what is the sign? What it says, you know, that's no sign, but the sign of Jonah just. As Jonah became a sign, what does that mean that he was a sign? Uh, was he a miracle? Well, he got there by a miracle. But you know what the miracle was? And some people said, well, it was his preaching. And other people said, well, it was his being spit up by the fish. So he could preach. I think it's both. I think it's both. Because when you think about it, how does Paul describe the Gentiles in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12? Do you remember that? He talks about the Ephesians who were in the world separated from the covenants and promises of God, having no 
hope. He says they were without hope, without God in the world. Why? Because they didn't have the word of God. So the great sign, I think, of Jonah was the fact that he, a a Jew, went to them, a Gentile nation, and preached the word of God, even though a fragment to them. That was a huge sign. And what did they do? They repented. They repented. But he also says, so will in the future, Jesus is speaking of himself in the future tense, so will the son of man be to this generation? Well, how is that? Well, Jonah was three days in the fish, spit up to preach. Jesus preached would be three days in the grave and resurrected to glory. And so that, of course, hadn't happened at this point. When Jesus rises from the dead, then the whole generation will hear about it. And then they will have to decide whether they want to believe the, quote, rumors that Jesus rose from the dead. And maybe his disciples, you know, snuck him away. And maybe the whole Roman guard just let him sneak past. And they were all taking a nap, even though uh, they would have been killed if that would have happened. And then Jesus would have been a witness to them. His resurrection would have been a witness to them. So what's happening here is Jesus is saying, you have way more information. You have way more revelation than those people. I'm doing miracles. I'm the son of God. I'm the Messiah. I've done all these things in front of you. I'm telling you who I am. I'm teaching you. I'm preaching at you and you still won't repent. And so he says, um, he then talks about the queen of Sheba. We'll get back to her. But notice what he says in verse 32. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. You know what this tells us? Now we get to heaven. You know who's going to be there? A lot of Ninevites. That is cool, huh? It's like, hey, who are you? It's like, oh, I'm one of the Ninevites. Whoa. You barely escaped. He's going to say, so did you. <laughs> You're one of those people from Burbank, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Anybody who gets to heaven barely escapes. Anybody who is saved is blessed. Exceedingly blessed. Because not only does God save them, he gives them the grace to obey his word. And so believing and obeying always go together because that's what salvation does. And Jesus says, those Ninevites are going to be looking down on you Jews and they're going to condemn you on judgment day because you know all about God. You know all about the law. You know all about the prophets. You know all about the Psalms. You have seen me do miracles. You've seen me preach. Here I am standing in front of you and you won't repent. They just had a fragment and they did. They're going to condemn you when you go to hell on judgment day. It's pretty serious. And then he says this. Look at verse 32 at the end. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah preached the word of God. That was incredible. Jonah led many people, Lord. That was incredible. But you know what's more incredible is Jesus because he is the word of God and he is the savior himself. 
Jonah couldn't save anybody and Jonah didn't do any miracles. But Jesus was and they weren't believing. So, how do, what do we do about this? Well, the first thing I think we need to do is we need to look at our own lives and we need to ask ourselves, do we know the Lord or not? Are we saved or not? I want you to know this is going to keep happening. There's a reason that Jesus puts these things in there because men are prone to either deceive themselves into thinking they can be saved or to postpone repenting so they can enjoy their sin for a little while longer. You know, if I became a Christian now, I'd have to clean up my business propositions. I wouldn't make as much money. I'd have to claim things on my taxes. I couldn't enjoy my pornography. I couldn't enjoy my trashy romances. I couldn't enjoy my whatever. And so we begin to put up these excuses and kind of postpone salvation. It's like the guy who said, well, I'll just wait till I'm on my deathbed and then I'll repent. And when he came at his deathbed, his friends found him crying out and weeping and wailing. And they said, what's wrong? He said, I thought I would be able to repent, but I can't. Don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. Look at your sin, sick soul. Look at your need for a savior. Forget about the miracles. Forget about history. Forget about great people who accomplish great things. And listen to Jesus who says, come to me. All you who are weak and heavy laden and I will give you rest. As many as received me. He says, I will give the right to become children of God, even to those who believe my name. He says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Believe in Jesus. That is the message. That is the message. Jesus was wanting these people in the crowd and Jesus wants people in this crowd to receive him as their savior. Third, Not Solomon, but Jesus. Look at verse 31. The queen of the south, Jesus says, will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Now, many of you might not know this story. If you want to, you can turn to 1 Kings chapter 10. 1 Kings chapter 10. Most people know the story of Jonah. I mean, you can't escape our children's program and escape Jonah. Man, he is so cool. I mean, it's a whale of a tail. He slept on a foam blubber mattress. One of the first. All right, look at First Kings 10. I'm just going to read this story, make a few quick comments so you understand what this whole story is about the Queen of Sheba. If you don't understand the story, if you don't remember it or whatever, it's not super popular, but it's interesting. Look at, uh, I'm going to read verses 1 through 10, skip verses 11 and 12, and then read verse 13. Now, when the Queen of Sheba heard about the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with difficult questions. Now, notice, this woman lived in a faraway place. Jesus describes her as coming from the ends of the earth. From a faraway place, she's a pagan. She's a woman. Okay? Jesus speaking to Jewish leaders, mostly here. So they don't have very much respect for women, so she fits the category of woman and Gentile. Okay? Those two things, Jewish men were glad they were not. Okay? Now, 
She came to him with difficult questions. Why? Because she heard about the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord. In other words, she heard that Solomon's God had given him this incredible wisdom and this incredible riches. She heard about that. So she comes this long distance. Verse 2. So she came to Jerusalem with a very large retinue or caravan or entourage with camels carrying spices and very much gold and precious stones. Now, why would you do that? Why would you come with all of this wealth? Well, we'll see in a minute. When she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was hidden from the king, which he did not explain to her. It's like, you got a riddle? Give it to me. Answer. You had a question about something? Answer. You want to know about this? Answer. You want to know how this works? Answer. I mean, he was like the answer man. He knew everything. He studied botany. He studied zoology. He studied sin. I mean, he studied everything. Read Ecclesiastes. The guy was brilliant. And there was nothing he did not explain to her. Verse 4, when the queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon, the house he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his servants, the attendance of his waiters and their attire, his cupbearers, and his stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. She was just humbled by it all. She was just lost her wind, so to speak. It just, it's like she wilted. From the magnificence of Solomon's wisdom and wealth. Verse 6. Then she said to the king. It was a true report which I heard in my own land. About your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless I did not believe the reports. Until I came and my eyes have seen it. And behold the half was not told me. You exceed in wisdom and prosperity the report which I heard. How blessed are your men and blessed are your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. She gave the king a hundred and twenty talents of gold. That's a lot. And a very great amount of spices and precious stones. There's where all that wealth she brought with her for. Never again did such abundance of spices come in as that which the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Verse 13. King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all her desire which she requested besides what he gave her according to his royal bounty. Then she returned and went to her own land together with her servants. Don't miss the contrast here either. We are talking about a woman, a Gentile woman who had a very low estimation in the eyes of Jewish men. She was a foreigner, a pagan from another land. She comes to Solomon. She sees Solomon, hears Solomon's words. And what does she do? The first thing is she's totally humbled. That's a good beginning. The next thing is she gives. She gives. Then what does she do? She praises God. She believes and praises God. I did not believe, but then I believed. 
and she praises God. She worships God. Now, what's happening here is Jesus is, okay, remember the Queen of Sheba? She went to a great expense to come from a long way to see Solomon and his wisdom and his wealth. And when she saw his, his wealth and heard his wisdom, how did she respond? She humbled herself. She believed. She gave. She worshiped. Something you're not doing. And then he ends. He says at the end of verse 32, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. What Jesus is trying to get all these Jews and us to come to grips with is, you know, the world has a lot of riches. Those are fine. A lot of things. I was, we were just in Germany. We saw some incredible, incredible churches that were so huge and so gilded with gold and polished marble and carvings, which, you know, make your jaw drop down. And people love those buildings. They are proud of their denomination, their creed, their heritage or whatever. But I'm telling you, that is, you're missing it. If that's what you think is important. What's important is Jesus because he is greater than anything else. He is greater than Solomon. He is the king who created the heavens and the earth. Solomon got all of his witches from Jesus. Solomon got his wisdom from Jesus. Jesus knows everything. Solomon knew a lot. Jesus is all-knowing. Solomon can't save you. Jesus can. Solomon can't sanctify you. Jesus can. Solomon never did any miracles. Jesus did tons of them. And so all of these point us to the same exact response. And that is... Everyone who hears the word of God and observes it is blessed. Everyone who hears the word of Jesus and submits to it is blessed because Jesus is greater than any prophet, than any king, than any response or any event. He is the Messiah. And so... As you leave here today, you just need to ask yourself the question. And and I know a lot of you are saved. I know a lot of you know the Lord and love the Lord. And I praise God for that. And don't think I'm up here trying to get you saved twice. I'm not. You can only be saved once. But I know there are some of you who don't know the Lord. And I don't know what's keeping you back from that. I can't read your mind. I think some of you might think you're saved and you're not. And others of you may know you're not saved. And yet you don't want to be saved. You don't want to repent of your sins. You want to hang on to your pornography or your whatever, or your materialism or your money or your cheating or whatever you're doing. There's some sin in your life that has you. You don't want to give that up to follow Christ. And so you aren't. And you are in far greater peril than the Ninevites or the Queen of Sheba or even the crowd that was standing in front of Jesus because you have all the miracles of the Bible recorded 
and all the word of God recorded and you didn't get a fragment, you got a whole hour. (laughs) And Jesus' message is, repent and believe and I will save you. I will save you. I am the savior. That's what he wants us to know. That's what he wants us to respond to. And if you already know Christ, then bless God who saved you. Praise God. Just serve God because he's worthy because Jesus is the greatest and you just love Jesus and just serve him because you want to. Those you love, you find easy to serve. Those you don't love, you find it hard to serve. So if you're finding it impossible to serve Jesus, it's because you're finding it impossible to love Jesus. Because if you love Jesus, you will keep his commandments. And maybe you just don't know him. And maybe this morning's the day when you need to come to know Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we were able to look at this text. And Father, I know there's people in here whose hearts are probably heavy within them, maybe who are wondering if they are saved or not. Maybe there's people in here who know they're not saved. Maybe there's people here who think they're saved but are certainly not saved. And maybe there's a few people here who are saved and yet are confused. Father, I just pray that you would give us all assurance That, Father, you would help us remember that you are the one who saves. You are the one who changes lives. You are the one who molds us into the image of Christ. And it is a process. It happens over the course of time. It happens slowly. It happens by your grace. Help us never to fall into the idea of retribution theology or compensation theology where we think we can earn your favor. favor. You loved us while we were yet enemies. You save us while we are yet sinners. And so, Father, help us to just serve you and love you. And if there's anybody here who doesn't know you, who's never placed their faith in Christ, who's never believed in faith that Jesus died and rose again on their behalf, may they do that now. May they cry out to you, confessing their sins, asking for forgiveness, receiving Jesus. May you change them by your grace so that they too might be exceedingly blessed like Mary. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.